The Rebrand Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, and I Hear Everything production. This podcast tells the stories of world-changing marketing campaigns as told by the people who build them. In each episode, you'll hear a brilliant marketer talk through the strategy, framework, and tactics used to elevate their brands to new heights. Ready to hear untold stories behind the brands you love? Then sit back, relax, and get ready for the Rebrand Here's the host of the Rebrand Podcast, the CEO of the Harky Group, Scott Harkey. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast. As you know, we tell untold stories of world-changing brand campaigns, as told by the marketers in the trenches every day building them. I'm your host and founder of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey, and today we're going to discuss how to take the guesswork out of your brand decision-making. Joining us is Jeremy King, who is the founder and CEO at Attest, which is a consumer research platform that makes doing regular research less of a big deal. By combining the best bits of research technology and human expertise, Attest makes it simple and fast for anyone to uncover opportunities with consumer data. All right. We talked yesterday with Jeremy about making brand guesswork illegal. Again, they have a ton of research on their site. We talked about how I don't have paid advertisers on this podcast. (laughs) I went on a little tangent there. But today we want to talk about using uh, research to avoid brand disaster. Here's my conversation with Jeremy King, the founder and CEO at Attest. All right, brother, how do we we not screw things up? How does our social media managers not post the wrong thing, be aligned with the wrong thing, have the wrong Super Bowl ad? I mean, there's just a million things to, to blow up a brand. And everyone's like, just be authentic. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, we get that. But brands are blowing up all the time. How do we avoid that? Well, this is one of my favorite topics. And I am very happy to name names about where disasters have happened. So I've got a personal favorite. Please do. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we can swap. Happy to name and shame. I think the, the key is just, and you can do this in an unbranded way. You don't need to test things outside your own office building or outside your own uh, network of friends with putting your brand at risk. Just throw out some ideas with target customers out in the real world and see how they respond. So there's been a few famous campaigns recently. I shouldn't name names on these, but where they backfired horribly. And if only, I sit there thinking, if only the people who'd come up with these campaigns had just walked outside their office, interviewed 10 people on the street who don't work for their company, they would have known that they were about to enter an absolute disaster zone. Does the company's name sound like Sud Light? It sounds a bit like that. I'll happily also name Peloton as well. Peloton had a series of ads that particularly in Europe were deemed to be extremely discriminatory. That led to this huge backlash in what Peloton were advertising, how they were selling it, how they were treating their different customer base. If those Peloton people had only just looked outside their own office and interviewed 10 people and said, we're thinking about putting this live, they would have got that feedback in minute one, rather than six months later and wiping a whole bunch of shareholder value. But didn't Peloton, because of the negative publicity, didn't it actually help their brand because people were talking about the commercial of being so misogynistic? I mean, 
we can talk about the cliches, no such thing as bad publicity, but we're still talking about it in a negative context months after it happened. Now they're getting killed. Now that Peloton is obviously not doing as well, I think because COVID's not happening and people aren't indoors riding bikes, but... I think it's a good point. I do want to dive in and look, I mean, Bud Light, I've avoided the topic. It's kind of my nightmare topic because it's very political, but you, you can't argue that they've lost a couple billion dollars in value. You can't argue that Costco's not putting Bud Light in their stores. And man, I, I do think at any point in time, brands are one word, one thing away from potentially being canceled or saying the wrong thing. And audiences are so diverse. I, I think you're seeing less risky Super Bowl commercials, you're seeing a lot more playing and safe, especially for big brands, especially in the alcohol category. How do you truly avoid disaster? I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to guarantee an outcome, but a really nice method is to test your weirdest ideas, but not with your brand attached. How many people do you need to test it for? Like, so we go on your platform, we're going to test a, a 30 second connected TV spot we're rolling out and we think we have lightning in a bottle, we're sponsoring Yellowstone or some hot show out and, and we're the connected TV pre-roll. How do we test it? I, I won't bore you with the statistical significance angle, but about a thousand people is usually enough to okay. cover a, a large market. And that'll cost me what? That would cost you with the test, that would cost you a couple of thousand dollars to get that right. Sweet. And I'll know the deal on that. Yeah. And a really nice way to do it is not to say, hello, we're XYZ brand and we're thinking about doing this very risky thing. What do you think about that? Instead, test, hello, what if a beer brand did this? What would you think about it? Or hmm. what words would you describe this campaign as having? And just take the brand hero shot out of the clip or the spot hmm. and show it to a bunch of people. And you'll very quickly know that there's a huge backlash coming from a subsegment that you never thought about, hmm. but will be very noisy. And that you can do now in a day. In fact, if you don't do that, I think you should be thrown in marketing prison. <laughs> not only go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect your paycheck, because you should go straight to jail, because you can test it, and you should have. And if you get it wrong, I think that should be the end. So to answer our simple title of the show, how do you avoid brand disaster? It's literally spend $2,000 and test creative with a 1,000 people. So easy. Or even simpler, the cheap version is go outside your building, find 10 people who don't work for your company and aren't you, and ask them, and then they'll tell you quite quickly if you're on the right track. That's not statistically robust, but you might get a better idea than any of the examples we've mentioned so far. So, so playing devil's advocate with you a little bit, I mean, the, the case study that always gets brought up is, look, Apple never tested anything. Microsoft tests everything. Who's a better brand marketer, Apple or Microsoft? I mean, mm. obviously, Apple's a better brand creative. I mean, Steve Jobs and his creative director at Chai Day, they didn't test anything. I mean, the 19... 85 commercial would have never happened. I mean, some of the greatest campaigns in the world would have never happened because it would have been tested and watered down. Plus, I'm not a big fan of creative by committee. I don't, and, and most, you know, great creatives certainly believe that, especially some of the greats in our industry, they were adamantly against testing. And, and I think what you're saying is more testing for, if you're going to do something crazy to make sure that you're not going to get canceled, not testing for input to make creative changes. Is that the difference that I'm hearing? Yeah, you can test for both. But if, you're, if your primary concern, your loudest noise this week is, this feels a bit on edge, who are we going to piss off most if we go down this path? You can find out very quickly if you want to. And not testing is great if you are Steve Jobs. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. And I haven't met any others recently. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it's a bit like if your quarterback is Pat Mahomes, you probably can come back from 21-0 down at halftime and you still have a pretty good chance to win. 
once you throw one interception as a brand marketer, it can hurt you for many, many quarters and that can really, really backlash. And that's why in our branding, we used to be called growth without guesswork. Now we stand for making guesswork illegal. So in a recent video, we, it's a bit cheeky and a bit silly. We have a great guesswork crime lab, which is based on a fictitious company launching vending machines in gyms that sell chocolate bars and that being a massive fail. And all you need to do is do a little bit of experimentation, testing and learning and iterating and repeating, and you can uncover the answers. And I think because we're not all Steve Jobs, we need a bit of help and getting that help is much easier than it used to be. I definitely hear your point of view, and I definitely at times believe in testing, but man, there, there, there's something romantic about the campaign world of coming up with something no one's ever seen or thought about. So how do you maybe balance that? I mean, I just think, was Got Milk tested? I don't know. I doubt it. I mean, just do it tested. I mean, the freaking Nike logo was $100 or something from some gal in college. So I'm, I hear you, and I, I do think testing is important, especially performance marketing, where the logo needs to be, where the call to action needs to be, of course. I'm just wondering at times if if you're looking at a never been done kind of idea, and I do believe that this business still at the end of the day is art and science, and I'm not convinced sometimes even your customers or your brand fans know what they want to see. And I think people certainly know all the time what they don't want to see. And and I've I've been in a number of focus groups and certainly seen that. So I don't know. I mean, what about the romantic part of the creative business? And, and again, I'm, a, I'm an agency owner. I, I didn't come up from the creative side of the business, but you, you know the industry people that I'm talking about. And I don't know, isn't there something, if you create something that hasn't been done, that probably wouldn't test well, that just blows it out of the water. We have seen those types of opportunities, not just jobs and, and the Apple commercial, but others. I don't know. Maybe I just want to fight with you about testing and see what you said. Oh. Well, let, let me say it quietly, because I'll be a real traitor to my background here. So I, I'm originally a scientist. I, my first job was McKinsey. I have an MBA from Harvard Business School. So I'll say, <laughs> I'll say this softly, because I'm a traitor to all of those things. I believe in magic. I believe in alchemy. I believe that marketers can come up with genius ideas that no one's ever thought of. In fact, my belief is that that's a big part of a great marketer and brand marketer's job, is to come up with things that no one has thought of, because... They can create magic. We're wizards. We are magicians. We are creators. We're Noma. Yes, I agree. Yeah, we're the fat duck. So sometimes you need to go out on a limb and put something out there, and every now and then it doesn't work. So this is why we use the phrase, inform every intuition, dissolve any doubt. We don't believe that research and testing has the answer every single time. We believe it can be helpful in any situation. And when you think you've got that alchemy thing, and you're 99.9% .9 convinced that it's going to be perfect, just take the 0.1% away by testing it with a few people and figuring out where there might be backlash. And you might discover no backlash, in which case, let's go full gas from day zero. That's worth knowing. On the flip side, if you're tossing up between an edgy idea and a conservative idea and everyone's saying, let's go conservative, what if you could get some data that says we should do the edgy thing? And suddenly all of the people who are on the fence, you can push them off it with just a few little data points. And we all want to be more customer centric and data driven. And you can like a naughty lawyer in a courtroom box in those defenders and get them off the fence and say, let's do the bold thing. We tested it. It looks like it's going to work. We're going to piss off some people, but it's the people we want to piss off. Everyone needs some enemies. And this is our enemy. And we're going to draw a ring around them. And we're going to say that they're the enemy. And we're going to delight all of our target customers are going to piss off everyone else wonderful outcome and people will be talking about it for quarters just like we're still talking about peloton 
fuck yeah, we pushed Jeremy a little bit and just came out with some fire. And look, I'm, I'm going to have all my creative directors that have ever worked for us listen to this bit because I, I think you nailed it. I think you, we've got in a little bit of debate on purpose, but I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And again, some of the best creatives I've ever worked with have an aura and a sense of magic and they think in a way that I could never think and they're going to dive in and they're going to fight me and they're, it's going to be a process. It's going to be a boxing match. And to get them on your side and understanding that research and testing is a, is a tool and is, is for their benefit, just like the more people involved in a group project and a creative and advertising industry, the work can get better, not watered down. It can go either way. But if everybody's on the same path to making the work better, which I think most people in the industry are, how do we use this as a tool? I, th- I think you nailed it. I think you brought it home big time. Is there any other maybe case studies or things that come to mind as, as we're thinking about this tool uh, as a way to make the work better? Two quick things. So one, I, I'm with you. I don't believe in creative by committee. I think that equals watered down, that equals consensus rather than something bold. And we'll never end up with some of those wonderful examples that you cited. Then again, if all the way through that creative process, customers are not involved at all, I also think that's wrong. I think at some stage, even in the boldest campaigns or even the most magical or alchemistic campaigns, you should get customers involved at some stage, be it the disaster avoidance or right at the top where it's knowing where to look. Some campaigns require a lot of input and hard work and customer business to others. You're going out on a limb. But if your answer is zero involvement, that's a problem. And I think my favorite example of this, and this one's really close to home, we share an investor with a company called Brandless, this company no longer exists. One of our board members also used to work there. She was the chief product officer of Strava, previously GoPro. Before that, she was at Brandless. She's called Megan, a really amazing person. And I don't have any inside information on Brandless. This is all outside in. But Brandless is a company that tried to create a brand for snack, in-office snacks, personal snacks that were high quality but unbranded, except the brand was called Brandless, which is a Brandless brand called Brandless. It raised over $300 million and unfortunately no longer exists. And it's easy to play back the tapes and understand why that happens. It's like an episode of air crash investigation for branding. Then again, the answer of trying to figure out what the reception for this would be like, what that product set needs to stand for. The core idea, I think, is a really powerful one. Having high quality products that aren't encumbered by the marketing and branding cost associated with those products you could get. You want beef jerky, you don't need to say certain words. You just want high quality and you're prepared to source it from anywhere. Brandless will take care of that for you, was the proposition. But something got lost along the way and that company lost their identity. And I think being called Brandless was part of the problem, in my opinion. And that's a really nice example of where a really great core idea can lose its way. And again, a little bit of testing and learning and understanding how that would be perceived before you go full gas on launching it in a whole bunch of customers and offices and markets, that would have gone a long way too. I think the core of my big takeaway is if you're not talking to your customers throughout the process, I I forget, what did you say? It was something really hardcore, but it made a ton of sense. It was like, if you're not... Throughout the creative process, if at some point you're not talking to your customers, you, th- you think that's a shame or it's, what, what did you say? Oh, I probably used the word illegal. Uh, if you're at zero, that is wrong. It's you wrong. You said it was wrong. And I mean, how arrogant are we sometimes to come up with some shit and think it's awesome and the shit we're coming up with for our people and our customers and our brand fans and our fanatics and our, our fans 
they haven't seen it. They don't know about it. Like the best stuff is getting bubbled up by them. And in some cases, like this is a community of people who have values and who have wants and attributes and things they want to do. And and we're just going to serve up a dish and think they're going to love it. It it is kind of insane. I I love what you said. If you're not talking to your customers throughout the creative process, you think it's some level that that's wrong. And I think that was my big takeaway and maybe insight that, you know, we do need to take and, and it's hard, right? And I think the company is different than consumers. And I think the more we can embed ourselves, and this is really, if you're in the agency service business, why clients hire us to represent the consumer at our best level. And I remember back like old school, we didn't have a ton of tools. And 15 years ago, we would just grab a camcorder and talk to people that were using our clients' shit. And those, what we call the man on the street interviews, those street interviews were essential to us crafting a campaign to show the client for a pitch or even during the process for a client. So I I think it's kind of getting back old school a little bit. And I got to tell you, I mean, if Bud Light had talked to their customers at all during a process of coming out with something major, I think they would have had an answer to, to, again, forget about how you feel, how some of their customers would have felt. And that's the key because... I used to tell clients all the time in brand workshops, I'm like, how many times do you buy your own product? <laughs> I mean, sometimes never. So you better be talking to your people. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I completely agree. On the one hand, it's quite arrogant of us marketers to believe that we can come up with these campaigns and new products and ideas and innovations that are so genius that no one's ever thought of them before. We all need to believe that we're Steve Jobs. At the same time, that's when we're valuable. We need that swagger. You've got to be like the hot hand in basketball. And Sometimes you've got to trash talk the opposition and say, throw me the ball, I'm, gonna, I'm hot. However, that's when we also need to be most careful. That's when we forget about the psychology and behavioral economics of marketing. We get things like confirmation bias. We all agree this is so awesome. It's my idea. I love it. Everyone else, I'm going to talk about it very passionately. You haven't had as much time as I think about it and the deadline is tomorrow. So we're going to go with my idea because it's so awesome. Also, I'm in charge. So we're going to go with the highest paid person's opinion and that's my idea and it's going to be amazing and watch me do it. And my track record really speaks for itself. We're just going to go with it. That's when we need to be careful. And just a little dusting of external input from your customers or naysayers about why it's not going to work. That's how we stay out of brand prison. And there's a saying from McKinsey, which is every great strategy starts with a privileged insight. And I think it's that type of thinking that keeps us humble. What is the basis of this moment of genius? Is it purely my gut feel? Is it that we know something that the competitors don't? Do we know something about our target customers that can unlock this new campaign? Is there something about this moment this week that means that this bold move is going to work today when it wouldn't have worked two months ago and it won't work two months from now? That's the type of question that we need to ask ourselves to cross-check this type of thinking, because without that, we're all just in a free-for-all. Uh, and that's how we make magic and alchemy actually create value guaranteed, as opposed to some element of luck. Man, Jeremy King, thanks for coming on. I mean, guys, we had someone from freaking McKinsey on, and I mean, you guys know McKinsey, a giant, you know, multi-billion dollar corporation, the consulting company. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we've been able to level set how we should be thinking about strategy, how we think about insights and um, how, how can they find out a little bit more about uh, your company? You, of course, we're going to drop, you know, your LinkedIn profile in our show notes as always, but give it anybody, is there a great tool that you have, or maybe some cool case studies for people to look at, maybe send our audience something. 
Yeah, come and check out our website. We're at askatest.com, A-S-K-A-T-T-E-S-T.com, askatest.com, or just go to attest.com. That also goes to the same place. We've got a whole bunch of data in there about what's going on in specific categories or markets or consumer ideas and fears and hopes and dreams of different consumers that you can learn about. And deep down, you can try our tool, talk to our team and uncover the things you need to know that are the biggest gaps in your understanding of your target customers. And we think that's something very valuable and we've made it very easy to start. We've also got a really cheeky, funny new video about this idea. It's a bit silly. Um, have a look on YouTube. It's called the Attests uh, Guesswork Crime Lab. And it's me and a, a police detective putting people in jail for doing naughty stuff when it comes to branding. Have a look. And I, I got to tell you, the, the one I liked that I was checking out was trend number one, fewer people feeling the pinch than six months ago. And they did a survey six months or less, or the data points are a brighter picture. The percentage of who say they aren't feeling the effects of the inflation increased by 2.7% percentage points to 20 percentage points. But we're not out of the woods with 8% pe- people still feeling the pinch. And then you go and you look at the survey. The first question here I thought was super interesting. With the cost of living rising, to what degree are you or your household feeling the pinch? 40.6 said high degree. 39.4% said moderate degree. I'm like, holy shit. So basically, 80% of people are, have, have some concerns about the economy and uh, rising interest rates. First, 5.3% said not all. And there's you know, well over 1,000 people in the survey. And it's male, female, and it's really great. And I just clicked on it. This is free shit. So thank you for coming on, Jeremy King. And like I said, we'll put your link in your show notes. And we'll, we'll catch up with you soon. A pleasure. And uh, a spoiler alert, the people who don't care about the cost of living or inflation are rich old people. <laughs> but I think we already knew that. The key thing about the research, we start to get into why and how and where it's changing and how it's different in different markets. That's fascinating. Here to talk about that much more. Just a couple just quick insights on that. Let me flip it into some interesting stuff we discovered about brand loyalty. So apply this consumers that are under pressure and the manifestation of that is very different in US regions, different states, different age demographics, different attitudinal and belief demographics. And then we start to translate that into how people are actually doing their grocery shopping, which brands they're picking off the shelves, how they're behaving as they move between different grocery retailers, bulk buy, small purchases, and the transaction and basket size mechanic for grocery stores and retailers is completely being broken apart by the pressures that consumers are under. And it's very, very specific to different regions and genders and earnings bands and specific retailers and trends. It looks like things like retailer-owned brands, own label, in-house label, those things are here to stay. And it's not just for people who are under financial pressure. It's a permanent shift, it looks like in our data, from big brands that are well-known that cost more to similar products and the level of understanding about where those products come from and the quality of those products and exactly how you get hold of them is changing. Customers prepared to spend more time than moving between locations to get better deals out of a sense of responsibility, as well as financial pressure. Some of those very valuable consumers who are more affluent and are feeling less financial pressure right now due to mortgage rates or inflation or job security, even those are feeling the psychological and emotional pressure to take more responsibility with their brand loyalty choices. So put all these things together, like we publish all the research free because it's interesting and because we can. We can run this every day if we want to. But we publish bits and pieces just because it's helpful and interesting. But what gets fascinating for me is when you start to shuffle these data points together, you can really hone a view of the future 
and what it tells us as specific to our brand, our company, our opportunity, the product that we're trying to launch. And that's where the power of research and information starts to make marketing magic possible for anyone. What are three things you see with the maybe American consumer that maybe concern you this year and moving forward, kind of to your point? I agree with you. I mean, every agency that I know right now is having a really tough first couple quarters. Most of the Fortune 5000 brands have put everything on hold. I mean, I have literally five signed contracts ready to go that are just in a holding pattern. I've talked to my friends at the holding companies. They're saying the same thing. The WPP CEO was saying he thinks Q3 and 4 are going to be great. I do too, but Q1 and 2 sucked ass. A lot of agency layoffs right now. A lot of brands just seem like they're kind of in a holding pattern. But what are consumers saying? I know you're not an economist, but you're a little crystal ball and research that you've seen, maybe what are some trends that we should be aware of for the next couple of quarters? One that really gets me is that consumers are unfortunately willing to spend less on environmentally friendly products. So over the last couple of years, we've seen a great rise in brands making environmentally friendly promises at huge expense, reformulating their products or packaging or supply chains to play to this more environmentally friendly message. Consumers used to reward that quite heavily. It was an obligation for brands. It was an obligation for consumers. Now we've seen that those prepared to pay a lot more for environmentally friendly products has fallen 4.7 percentage points to only 7% of the total population in the US. Whoa, that's a big freaking deal there. That's a big drop off. And those that will pay a moderate amount declined 5.2 percentage points to 14.5. So Environmentally friendly products aren't for everyone. If you're very cost conscious, this is not your primary concern. Value for money and absolute price, your primary concerns. For those that can afford it, which tend for brands to be more valuable consumers who are harder to acquire, higher CPAs, they're more loyal, so they're worth acquiring for longer. The environmentally friendly message, unfortunately, in my opinion, because I really believe in brand responsibility and consumer responsibility to uh, support climate change, Consumers are prepared to pay less for those products, even relative to six and 12 months ago. Only older consumers are likely to want to pay extra. And as I just mentioned, they're the ones that are likely to afford it. So luckily, almost half of shoppers, 43%, are willing to pay a small premium for environmentally friendly products. But those that are prepared to pay a lot more or a moderate amount more have declined quite significantly from peaks even six, 12 months ago. And what this means as an environmentally friendly brand is you must at least attempt to take price out of the equation. If you can reach price parity or close to price parity for your environmentally friendly product, you can unlock this 43% of consumers that are willing to pay more for it. But those that are willing to pay a lot more for an environmentally friendly product, that's really, really tailed off. And these are things that are hard to retool in the long term and the short term. And this is a bit of an apocalypse that's pending and brewing for many brands that played into this trend, where that trend is now working against them. Wow. I think you nailed that category. Oh, you must agree. I'm sorry. I just did one. <laughs> no, I, no, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, look, we have nine more minutes. I, I think, guys, we just do whatever on the show. I mean, you want to stop listening, fine. But I, I'd like to get some insights from a McKinsey guy. What's maybe another trend you said? I, I mean, I've certainly seen experiences and travel and entertainment increase, even with a squeezed economy. I thought that was interesting that people still want to spend money on travel that has, you know, unique experiences for the family or for them individually. That's a trend that that certainly I've seen. Housing, of course, you know, no one's trading a low interest rate for a higher interest rate. So that's pretty stagnant, even though there's pretty low inventory. Any other just maybe unique 
insight and like consumer insights that you're seeing while we have, you know, maybe a few more minutes. Another personal favorite, because it can be applied everywhere. So we've seen this big uplift in the percentage of Americans that are getting involved in fixed grocery shopping budgets. So 51% of consumers say that they control their grocery spend to a fixed budget, which is a 4.3 percentage point increase on the last time we run this research. So just a few months ago, that's quite a big change. And what this means as a brand is if you can figure out a way to play into that need, you can start to control and regain control of consumer psychology that causes you to believe that a brand is working for a consumer rather than against you as a consumer. So if you as a brand or a retailer can say, we love that you have a budget and here's how we're helping you with that budget. We want your budget to be flat while costs are increasing. We want your quality for your family to remain the same or potentially even improve. Here's how we're doing that. So literally getting on the other side of the table and helping consumers do what they want to do, which is to stick to a budget, but on your terms and using your marketing engine and your marketing magic that we spoke about earlier and putting that to work, but in the customer's interest. So it's literally joining them on their side of the table with their interest point. There was a famous piece of research. I shouldn't name where this was published or in which country, but in this country, the research showed that, and it's not the UK or the US, The research showed that most consumers really only accurately know the value of a product in their grocery basket for about three to 10 items. And across the entire nation, there were only about two to four items that were in any way consistent, which as a retailer means that if you can price those items lower, the consumer will believe that their entire basket was cheap because you've made the thing that they know about look cheap and everything else is expensive. That's the exact opposite of the thing I'm talking about. That's the predatory tactic using price elasticity and naughty psychology to punish consumers for their lack of information where the information asymmetry is all in your favor and all against them. Here we have information asymmetry in favor of the consumers. Consumers want a budget. They're sticking to it. They're telling us about it. Our test research shows that it's more than 50%. We as retailers can play into that or we can let that work against us. So the more we can understand these consumers, how they set that budget, what causes them to think that their budget is being spent well and how they get payback and the things that they're emotionally trying to unlock by creating that budget and the things they're willing to give up and not compromise to make that budget work. If we can help them with that, we win. If we don't, we will lose. So <laughs> I have a really weird example, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. Did you ever see the movie, Mr. Mom? I didn't. must have missed that one. Okay. <laughs> my, uh, you're from the UK. Well, all my whole family's American. So I just, I just sound British. So, so funny. There's a, there, I mean, a show, like early show, and it, it was about like this dude loses his job, comes back, and his wife goes and works in advertising. And he's like, has to do all this stuff and take the kids and he's a mess and all that. Anyway, she worked for a tuna brand called Schooner Tuna. And her whole idea was to like give consumers a break on the price during this time in the 80s when things were a little tight. And I mean, it's basically essentially the strategy that you're recommending that 52% of people don't know really the value. No, 52% of people are on a fixed freaking budget for grocery shopping. And, and there's only three out of seven products. They actually know the true value from a price. Mm. Anyway, I'm, I'm thinking of Spooner Tuna. So I need Mr. Mom fan. <laughs> you need to watch this movie. It's like voted one of the top 10 greatest marketing advertising movies of all time. So oh, I, I'm a similar thing. There was a, there's a film, I think it had, I forget, was it Dudley Moore in it? And it just kept on repeating the phrase, Volvo, they're boxy, but they're good. <laughs> that really stuck with me. I'm like, if you can just be honest and just say, Volvos are safe, but not cool, but they're yeah. safe. 
not cool, we know it, eight mile, flip the scripts. We've taken that away from you. You can't use that against us now. They're boxy, but they're good. And they're safe. Very simple. I love that. I mean, so, Volkswagen Bug, the most greatest, one of my favorite companies all time that says lemon, right? There's a Volkswagen oh. ad and cheap black and white that says lemon. Yeah, so, okay. We have four more minutes. One more inside. This has been fantastic. I, we're, we're getting little, people who are staying on are going to get a little bonus episode here. Who doesn't want more consumer insights? This is freaking awesome. Thank you. Oh, really interesting thing. Talking about media here, Paramount Plus is chalking up the biggest growth among streamers. And mm. how are they doing it? Um, it's free, it's ad-supported, has a huge amount of growth. And what we can see is that the drivers behind that is the ability for Paramount to understand what matters most to consumers. The, the basis for decision-making among different streaming products for consumers has become a lot broader recently. There used to be a small number of brands. Now we've got a wider number of brands. We used to have low and efficient pricing. Now we have higher and less efficient pricing. The cost of fragmenting your demand across so many different platforms is exponentially larger than it was four or five years ago. You used to have one streaming service. Now you could have 20. And therefore, the base of competition has shifted. And I think Paramount Plus have done a wonderful job of understanding exactly how that works. And we've seen this happen across Europe with the fragmentation, proliferation of different sub-brands. And that's been really interesting to monitor. But again, key is to understand what customers want, how the pressures on them are evolving, and how they make decisions. And that's what Paramount Plus have done so well. I love it. Jeremy King with a bonus episode on some insights. I agree on Paramount Plus. I think Yellowstone's obviously helped them and some of their original content, of course. But also the idea that a smaller niche media player can have a connected device growth, but also have advertising. So it's a lower cost for the service. The trade-off is, of course, advertising, and then they're creating great original content, but kind of still a niche player. So I know you got to go. You're the best. Thanks for a little bonus episode. Jeremy King, we have to have him back on for some more insights. Thanks for coming on and have a great week, dude. A pleasure chatting. See you soon. So thank you, everybody. You can find me, Scott Harkey, pretty much anywhere. Probably the best way is LinkedIn and Instagram. LinkedIn, if it's a spam message, it looks like a spam message. I, I have a hard time returning those, obviously. But in any other kind of casual format, love to connect and keep building this audience of this marketing community. And remember, subscribers is really what I look for. That's called building our, our clan, our group here. Um, so that's it for today. Remember, it's never too late to rebuild, reboot, or rebrand. Bye.